Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Most failures happen not because people don't work hard, not because they're not passionate, not because they don't execute well, but because the, the, they're building the wrong product. As I say in the book, make sure you're building the right it before mm -hmm. you build it. Yeah. Right. A lot of failures are cannot be attributed to incompetence or lack of desire. It's just people pick the wrong idea. And I saw that in my father and in my experience as an entrepreneur, I kept seeing that uh, many, many times. In fact, I would say that 80% of engineers and product managers, whatever titles you have in most companies, are working with products that when launched uh, will fail. Mm. And of course, I don't like that training because <laughs> our most valuable resource, right, to solve all the problems in the world uh, are entrepreneurs and innovators, inventors, right? Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are going to come up with a new solution. And yet with, you take this most valuable resource and 80% of the time they're going to fail. So that really doesn't sit well uh, with me. And that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, the book is just the outcome of 10 years of research and making sure that what I teach and what I discuss actually uh, works. So that's my mission to, to, to beat failure. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alberto, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Srini. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I, as we were saying before we hit record here, I came across your book, The Right It, Why So Many Ideas Fail and How to Make Sure You're Succeed. Uh, and the title grabbed me immediately because I'd seen so many failures in my own life with a lot of my own online projects. Uh, but then, you know, I, I dug into it. And as somebody who likes everything to be backed by research and data, it really, really struck a chord with me. So I emailed you right away. And, uh, you know, we're finally doing this. But before we get into the content of the book, uh, this is something I had wanted to ask you just based on your last name and now obviously based on your accent. Where in the world were you uh, were you born uh, and raised? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I love this personal question. I was born in uh, Rome, Italy. And just like uh, pizza, I came to America to for to become bigger and better. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and uh, I landed in Silicon Valley. Uh, actually, my, my parents divorced, so I came here with my father, you know, to start a new, a new life. And uh, I landed in Silicon Valley, and I thought, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. You know, it's it's in it's in the air. And mm. uh, so that was that's how I came to come up with the experiences that I discuss in the book. How how I learn about failure and uh, how to overcome it. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, part of growing up, I think, in every culture is that culture instills certain values, certain belief systems, you know, certain yeah, programming. And I wonder what aspects of the Italian culture do you think played a role in you um, ending up doing what you're doing? And what aspects do you think you actually rejected as uh, to, to be able to do what you do? Yeah, gr- great question. So uh, I would say, you know, Romans are pretty famous, you know, both the philosophers and the, you know, the engineers are very empirical. Right. They, you know, they, they were able to build aqueducts that went hundreds of miles without really knowing the physics behind it. So, uh, if you look at like Roman philosophy and Greek philosophy, you know, the Greeks have Plato and the world, they deal with the work of Adia and the, uh, the allegory of the cave and they come up with all these theoretical concepts. Whereas the, uh, Roman philosophers are, and engineers are much more practical. They, they tinker, right? They build, they try to learn things uh, firsthand, and I'm a big believer in doing that. So I would say I've, I've taken that actual attitude in my life to just tinker. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess the part I rejected is that in Italy, and I would say in most of Europe, and not just Europe, uh, you know, pretty much anywhere outside Silicon Valley, there is this fear of failure. There's mm-hmm. a huge stigma attached with failure, right? There are countries in uh, Europe where if you have a bankruptcy, you're not allowed to start a company for 10 other years. So just like you go into entrepreneurial wow. jail. Uh, and, uh, but so yeah, I, I'm much more comfortable with, uh, with failure. Having said that, I do not like to fail. And I think <laughs> failure can be handled. And that's why I decided to write uh, this book based on my experiences with great successes at Google and some of my startups, but also with one failure that really bit me and hurt me. And I said, okay, you bit me, I'm going to bite back. And uh, Mm. the result is the work of my last 10 years. Okay. So we'll come back to the failure that bit you in and Google and all this. But uh, one other thing I wonder is in the Italian culture, what do parents teach their kids about risk tolerance, about pursuits that where, you know, the outcome isn't guaranteed. Is it similar to sort of the Indian or Asian culture where, you know, you're constantly encouraged to be doctors, engineers, go do something stable. And then, you know, if you don't do that, they're like, well, then how the hell do you plan to get paid? Uh, or do they encourage, uh, you know, a variety of pursuits? You know, I would say it's, it, it's neither. I don't think there is this pressure to be a, uh, a doctor or a lawyer as in some, uh, other culture, mm-hmm. but there is this tendency to, uh, Stick close to your knitting. So if your father was a butcher in Rome, maybe you're, they would like you to be the son of a butcher in Rome. You know, being a butcher, I guess it's a, uh, it's a good thing. So they're, uh, they don't want you to take too many, uh, too many risks. But, uh, I cannot say that there is just like there is in some other culture, this generalized uniform, uh, push to have your children to be or do anything specific. I, I've observed that. Uh, I have a, a lot of friends and colleagues, of course, as you can imagine, from uh, from India, and I can notice the difference in their culture, how important for them it is to achieve, to succeed, to get the title, where I would say that we're a bit more nonchalant, right? And in fact, mm-hmm. you can see it in the result. Uh, the, the Italian economy is not exactly booming. <laughs> right? we, we tend to take things a little bit easier, more relaxed. So Italy is a yeah. great place for vacation. Uh-huh. So I, like, I, I hope that by combining my I- Italian attitude with this kind of Silicon Valley drive, it's a, it's a good combination. 
<laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I, as you were saying that, I, I, I remember I, you may have seen it. Michael Moore did a, a documentary called uh, Where to Invade Next, where he goes around to different countries in Europe to look at various social policies. And he goes to Italy and he, first he looks at their you know eight weeks of paid vacation policy. He's like, these people look like they're having sex all the time. And, you know, it turns out that that was actually true is what they said, um, you know, but the way that the the culture there in terms of work uh, really operates was so different uh, when I saw that documentary. Um, so how old were you when you came here? I was uh, 17. So I finished okay. high school in the, the United States, which was quite a shock, right? Because my level of English is, this, imagine if you studied, I don't know, Spanish or some other language in high school, uh -huh. I knew as much English as, as you learn if you take, you know, two hours a week in high school uh, through your junior years. But uh, fortunately, I, I learned I'm, I'm pretty good with languages, uh, human mm. languages and computer languages. So it 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 wasn't a bad transli transition. Actually, I, I liked it. You know, when I... When I landed in Silicon Valley, uh, in, you know, in California, it took me maybe two or three months. And then I realized, you know, I'm, I'm a Silicon Valley boy in a Roman body. Uh, <laughs> so it, for me, it felt very, very natural. I'm still attached to my homeland, but th this is the place I was meant to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, uh, particularly when you have transitioned into an environment at that age, you know, when so much of your social programming has been kind of done, like what, what did you find shocking about the culture uh by landing in high school here like what did you find different what did you find strange uh what did what made you were there any things that made you think are oh, these american people are out of their minds well so i'll tell you this has nothing to do with the book but it's a fun story so the uh fir first week of high school i made some friends and they said okay let, let's go out let's have fun and we were 17 and it turns out that for them fun was scoring a 12 pack of beers and going in a parking lot and drinking beer at 17, yeah. <laughs> which, which, you know, in Italy, they, they, they have you sip wine when you're six. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, I didn't find that much of a thrill. So it took me a while to adjust to these, uh, uh, to the uh, American culture, you know, uh, especially the drinking part that uh, mm -hmm. it, it seems to be such a big deal over here. And, uh, you know, in Italy, we take it for granted. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, this ability to bite back at, at failures, you know, I wonder, part of me wonders, is this grit something that can be cultivated or do you get it through experience? Because I feel like often emotional resilience is only the byproduct of going through something painful. Like you build a tolerance for this painful thing by going through it. And so I, I wonder, you know, where did this start? But more importantly, like what led you down this path? Like, where did you go to college? Like, you know, were you set on the idea of computer science and entrepreneurship right out of high school? Yeah. So, no, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the background. Actually. You know, I'd never thought about this until I listened to one of your previous podcasts where you asked uh, about somebody's parents and, you know, how they influenced you. And mm. when my father came to the U.S. Uh, after my parents' divorce, he, he always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And he was a smart guy. He was a hardworking guy. But he had a lot of failures. And so, you know, I kept seeing my, my father fail with this idea and that idea. And I hadn't thought about that until... Two or three decades later, when I thought, huh, maybe I have this bone to pick with failure because I saw my dad failing and trying too hard. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of my book is that most failures happen not because people don't work hard, not because they're not passionate, not because they don't execute well, but because the, the, they're building the wrong product. As I say in the book, make sure you're building the right it before mm -hmm. you build it. Yeah. Right. A lot of failures are cannot be attributed to incompetence or lack of desire. It just people pick the wrong idea. And I saw that in my father and in my experience, 
as an entrepreneur, I kept seeing that uh, many, many times. In fact, I would say that 80% of engineers and product managers, whatever titles you have in most companies, are working with products that when launched uh, will fail. Mm. And of course, I don't like that training because (laughs) our most valuable resource, right, to solve all the problems in the world uh, are entrepreneurs and innovators, inventors, right? Mm-hmm. They're the one that are going to come up with a new solution. And yet we, you take this most valuable resource and 80% of the time they're going to fail. So that really doesn't sit well uh, with me. And that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, the book is just the outcome of 10 years of research and making sure that what I teach and what I discuss actually uh, works. So that's my mission to, to, to beat uh, failure. Mm. Okay. So I, I think that the funny thing is in Silicon Valley, I think we, we don't have this, you know, uh, failure stigma, but our education system really does stigmatize failure, particularly here in the United States. Uh, there's a, a really beautiful book by a woman named Jessica Leahy, who's a, a middle school teacher. And I remember picking it up because it was about overcoming failure. And I can tell you as somebody who grew up in an Indian family, there are two things that happen when it comes to grades. Nobody puts your report cards on fridges. Uh, mm-hmm. when you get A's, that's just the expectation. And if you get a B plus, the only question is why didn't you get an A? And if you get Fs, it's just out of you know that, that that's that you know that never happened in my household because you just didn't want to ever wonder you know like what the potential outcome of of getting an F is. I remember the day I got sent to the principal's office, and I did it on purpose because I wanted to see how my mom would react. Not well. Uh, I knew I was like okay. I left a book in a locker, and we had this really stupid check system where if you got six checks in a day, you got sent to the principal's office, and the principal was like, "What are you doing here?" I was like, "I don't know. I just wanted to see what this was like." Yeah, uh, absolutely. Different cultures have different tolerance for, not just for failures, right? But for not meeting a certain, uh, uh, a certain bar. Mm. And the the way we destigmatize failure, uh, to go back to the original question, it it just like, I actually came up with a term, uh, which I, which I teach in my class. I call it phalophobia. And phalophobia is an irrational fear of failure. Uh, so it's, it's, it's such a fear that it keeps you from doing, uh, uh, from taking very reasonable, um, uh, risks. And the way to cure failophobia is to expose yourself to small failures. Because, uh, one of the things that I tell people is that failure is like cholesterol. There is good failure and bad failure, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, good failure is, Hey, I have an idea. Let's do an experiment. Let's spend, you know, 20 bucks and a couple of hours or a couple of days to see if anybody's interested in this idea. And if it doesn't work, that's good failure, right? Yeah. You, you, you fail fast. As I like to say, you fail Ferrari fast and Fiat cheap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like that. Because so, people say, yeah, we fail fast. And I said, oh, wh- how long was your last failure? Well, only three months. I said, no, 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 that's, that's slow. You want to fail Ferrari fast and Fiat, uh, Fiat cheap. Yeah. So, when when you get used to dealing with small failure, just like if you're afraid of spider, first I show you the, the photo of a spider, right? And then a little spider 10 feet away, and then they move it closer. When you expose yourself to a lot of experiments and you see that things don't work and you're still alive and ready to, uh, to experiment another day, uh, that's how you overcome uh, phalophobia. Yeah. Well, it's funny because that's in so many ways you're describing the process we used for you know building the Architects of Reality conference. Like we didn't book a venue and then try to sell tickets. We basically put up a landing page and said, "All right, if you're interested, sign up." And I knew I said, "Okay, if nobody buys tickets on day one, then we've not invested immense amounts of time and money into this thing." Um, which fortunately that isn't what has happened, which is great. But it was a, a great way to protect the downside. Now. 
one thing I wonder, uh, having interviewed at Google and not getting the job, um, I know that you attract, you know, sort of the best of breed people. Uh, in my mind, you have you attract the types of people who've basically been conditioned their entire life to avoid failure because they're people who go to places like Berkeley and Stanford and Harvard. So when they've got this narrative, like, do you find any resistance in their ability to let go of this need to not fail? Well, n- no, because f- for the following reason, because the approach that I teach is so logical. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, you know, mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of a mathematician by background and a programmer. So I, unlike some people that uh, market ideas, I cannot present something to you if it doesn't make logical sense from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm an engineer and I speak the engineers and the Google Ross language. So they, people who join Google usually are very logical. They, they understand things. So when I present the, the, the tools and techniques of prototyping mm-hmm. uh, that I describe in the book, I, at every step, I ask them, is this logical? Does it make sense? And they say, yes, absolutely. So it, we're able to overcome any resistance. And at the end, I said, Yes, dang, this is right. Why didn't anyone teach it to uh, to me before? Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't tell them that this works. Works. I tell them this cannot not work. Yeah. It's like the quadratic equation, right? <laughs> before somebody came up with it, people were you know kind of making wild ass guesses and plotting and you know do trial and error. Mm-hmm. Then somebody showed it, showed you the the quadratic equation. If you plug in the right numbers and do it right, it always works. Yeah. So the, the tools and things that I teach have to have that property for me. They mm. must always work and they must be very logical. That's why I haven't met uh, any resistance. In fact, a uh, f- very wide acceptance. Mm. Just out of curiosity, do you have children? I have, yes, I have two kids, uh, a 30-year-old daughter and a 25-year-old son. Both work at startup. Okay. <laughs> uh, in uh, startups, including my, my daughter works at Stitch Fix. And okay. here's a funny related story. So when she came to me and told me, hey, dad, I really want to join this company. And she explained to me what Stitch Fix does. For those of you who don't know, you know, I've, you subscribe, you have a stylist and every month you get a box with five, six pieces of clothing uh, picked for you by a stylist. You pick, keep the ones that you want and send back the ones you, you're not interested in. And when she described it to me, I said, honey, you, you know that that teaches about failure, right? So, you know, this is a startup. Most startups will fail. I don't know about this idea. You know, I'm not uh, a woman or somebody who likes to shop for clothing, but just be prepared that it might fail. Fortunately, it turned out to be a huge success. They had an IPO <laughs> yeah. that worth a couple of billion dollars. Yeah. So I'm glad it worked out for her. And yeah. uh, my son is working at a, a local company here in Mountain View that uh, works on uh, AI and uh, robotics. So uh, yeah, my, my family is, <laughs> is all Silicon Valley as much as it can be. Yeah, well, because the reason I asked the question is, and, and yeah, I know having heard the podcast, you know, that despite me not having any kids, um, I, I seem to always want to ask questions about parenting and, and kind of what advice you would give to parents who are listening to this about how to encourage this in their kids. Because it seems like, you know, your kids have inherited this ability to do this and to think this way, maybe probably as a byproduct of having you as a father. Uh, what advice would you give to parents who are listening if they have kids? Uh, because I, I think the earlier that you can cultivate this capacity, uh, the the more likely you are to end up with better outcomes. Because, you know, when I went to Berkeley, you know, it was so hard to do anything. Even executing an idea, you needed, you know, hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars in technical yeah. skills. Now, a lot of that is gone. And I think much more of what we're trying to overcome is sort of this internal battle that we're talking about. Yeah, so I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really the right person to give parental advice because <laughs> a, lot, a lot of it is luck, right? What, 
what uh, wor- worked on uh, on uh, our kids may not work uh, on other kids. So I, I would say we probably had twenty percent influence mm-hmm. uh, in what they did. I I think that by seeing me join Sun Microsystems in the early days, doing my first startup that went very well in the uh, w- when they were kids, and then joining Google, who did very well. Uh, and, and then uh, seeing my second startup, the one that prompted me to write the book that didn't work out as well, they kind of learned that, you know, you can fail with a startup. Some of them, some of the time it succeeds and then, you know, it, it really pays off and it's a great thing. And even if you fail, look, that's latest startup didn't work, but uh, he went back to Google and now everything seems to work. So yeah, failure, nothing to be too afraid about. I think that that may be the influence I've had on that. Yeah, so I want to talk briefly about um, the culture at Google, mainly because I, this is something I, I personally wondered about. And I think I've had one other person who worked at Google here, but I think n- nobody in, in sort of you know the level of sort of seniority that you're in. Uh, and the reason this is you know just personally morbid curiosity for me is because as I told you, when I was in business school, uh, I got rejected for a job at Google. And I think one of the things that I remember very distinctly was how difficult some of the interview questions were. I remember going to an investment banking interview and somebody's like, you know, how many golf balls can you fit in a 747? And now my answer would be, well, unless Richard Branson and I are planning on doing ecstasy, I can't see any reason why I would need to know that. Yeah. Uh, but so part of me wonders, I know that part of this has changed. Um, what is it that you know, like makes candidates stand out in your mind when you guys hire people who come to work for you, what is it that makes somebody successful at a place like Google? Well, you know, right now I'm, uh, I'm on leave from Google and the company has, I don't know what, how many employees, but now it's a hu- huge uh, number. So I really do not know what's going on in all uh, departments, but I would say that your experience is shared by a lot of people. I've, I, I've personally recommended friends of mine whom I knew to be extremely smart and somehow somewhere in the interview process, something did not, uh, uh, did not work. So I would say if you didn't get an offer for, from Google after one interview, you're in very good company. <laughs> and, but here's the thing. If you really want to work there, keep applying, mm. right? Because, uh, you know, if, if you're in the ballpark, maybe some, someday you get somebody that asks you that question that really completely throws you off for a loop. Or maybe it's a bad day for you. So I, I've known, I've had friends that first time they did not get the job, but then they replied and they were uh, accepted uh, in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to come back to sort of this, you know, super high level of achievement of people like Larry and Sergey, but let's bring that back to, you know, the later part of the conversation, because I think it'll be more relevant there. Let's actually get into, you know, the content of the book itself. So one of the first things you say is the root cause of most failures can be traced back to muddy, fuzzy, undisciplined thinking. Uh, So I guess, you know, how do you get to disciplined thinking? And then what is what you call, you know, market failure? Like, how do you distinguish between market failure and market success? Yeah. So uh, as I write in the book, remember, I'm I'm an engineer, so I tend to be very precise in my definition. Uh, Failure is when your expected results are uh, less than the, uh, I mean, are sorry, when your actual results are less than the expected results, right? So for your conference, you expect to sell, I don't know, 300 tickets and you only sell 50 tickets. That would be failure, correct? Yeah. Right. And on the other hand, if you say you're expecting to sell 200 tickets and you sell 500, that would be success. So that's how we define it. Okay. So the first step uh, when you come up with a new idea is to be very specific about what success means to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for, for a while, for a couple of years, I was trying to get people to uh, express it as clearly as I could. And then one day, 
at Stanford during office hours, I had one of those moments that you remember. In fact, in the book, I, I, I took a photo of that moment of the whiteboard because it was so, uh, so powerful. So I had this group of students had an idea for an air portable air quality monitor and they, they kept expressing their idea in very fuzzy ways. Yeah. Some people that work in very polluted city would, would buy this device for their kids. And uh, I was struggling to, to get them to say it with numbers, right? Stop being so fuzzy. And someone had left on the whiteboard some equations from, I think it was probably calculus class, you know, with X, Y's and Z's. That's when I had this, this flash of insight. I said, all right, stop. Tell me your idea using this formula. At least X percent of Y will do Z. X percent is a percentage of your target market. Mm -hmm. Y is your target market. And Z is some action with skin in uh, the game, something that they will do. So that forces you to take a fuzzy idea and put it into a very uh, clear format. So, So instead of saying some people in very polluted city will buy a portable air quality device, Mm. Uh, from us, it would say 10% of people living in cities with an air quality index higher than um, 100 will will buy will spend $99 on a portable uh, uh, air quality device. So this is the clarity that you need to have at the beginning to express your idea. Make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I have a question around that. So um, I don't know if you've ever read it. There's a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Um, I don't remember who the authors were, but Cal Newport mentioned this in his book as well, right? So often the numbers we're talking about. So for example, you could say, okay, I'm going to increase the traffic to my website, right? Or I'm going to sell X number of books or, or what you call a lag, you know, what you would call, what they would call a lagging, lagging indicator because you don't control that per se. So how do you balance the, the, the sort of knowing that, okay, this is what the success number looks like, um, you know, X number of book sales with knowing that, okay, wait a minute, like I control my effort in terms of writing a good book, in terms of, you know, reaching out to making podcast appearances, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, whether I can control the metric or not is, you know, questionable. The other thing is, you know, you mentioned the conference and, you know, I wonder what role time plays in all of this, because, you know, you're right. Like if we wanted to sell 300, um, which is what we're aiming for, but we have until April. And that's what, so I wonder about that. You know, it's like, you're probably not going to sell all 300 in one week. Well, that is correct. So uh, what you do is, that's why the formula says at least X percent of Y will do Z, Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and then what you do, and I describe in the book is a technique called hypo-zooming, right? So let's speak for your conference. Uh, First of all, who is your target audience? The people who listen to the podcast. Perfect. You know, it couldn't be any better, right? Uh, So how many people do you have listening to the podcast? Uh, On any given week, probably last I looked at the metrics, anywhere between 30 to 40,000. Okay, so that's that's an awesome number, right? So you don't need to do uh, uh, to do a lot. So, and what do you expect them to do? So ultimately, you would like them to to sign up for the conference. That, yep. uh, and I know you're doing it in Nashville, and it's reasonably priced because you want to try to get as many people as possible. Yeah, exactly, correct? we wanted to make it accessible um, because when we did a conference, I think in 2014, because it was small and we didn't have economies of scale we had to price it extremely high in order to cover it. So that's why we moved it to Nashville because we thought, you know what, we priced out way too many people last time. The whole purpose of this was community. And uh, I really wanted to make this something that anybody could get to. Perfect. So here's a perfect XYZ hypothesis uh, for you. Uh, because you have so many listeners, you, you can have a very small percentage. You could say uh, 2% of the people who listen to my podcast 
will uh, request some, will send a, submit their email to request a, a, an invitation or some more information about the conference. Mm-hmm. Agreed? Yep. Right. So by, by setting an at least number, you're, you are not projecting how many will participate, but that at least number is important because that's where the viability of your idea comes in. Mm-hmm. So in design thinking, we have uh, three things that must work out for a product, for an idea to succeed. Desirability, do people want your product? Feasibility, can you build and deliver your product? And viability, can you make a, a business out of it, mm-hmm. right? So clearly you can put up a conference that's feasible, right? Yep. Uh, uh, in, uh, you can test desirability using the prototyping techniques. Yep. By the way, that's the area I'm focused on, right? Desirability, mm-hmm. make sure that people want your product. Yep. Uh, now, then it comes to the viability and that's where it becomes a business. And that's where you decide, look, I need to have at least 0.5% of my uh, monthly audience mm-hmm. uh, sign up for the conference to make it uh, worthwhile. Yeah. And that's what deci- de- determines your lower bound. And then you do experiments to see if you can actually get anywhere near there. Yeah. Now, things may explode, right? So people always tell me, well, Alberto, how can I predict, you know, if we're going to be the next Facebook or the next Google? <laughs> I call it, no, you cannot do that, right? But think of, of how all of these companies started. Facebook started by inviting Harvard students for dating purposes. Mm-hmm. Google started at Stanford indexing all the Stanford online material internally, right? So they all start with a very, very uh, small uh, focus, and then they start to expand more and more. Same thing with Gmail. Mm-hmm. Gmail started as an internal project by people that weren't too happy with how um, other mail uh, services worked. It was used internally. And then after two or three years of people inside Google really liking it, right? So that's what, you know, clearly desirable. They did a pilot. They invited a thousand people from outside Google. Almost all of them signed up. So that clearly indicates success. And then after three months, they were all still using it regularly. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an idea of initial level of interest and ongoing level of interest. Now, for Gmail to go from that stage to being, you know, the, the, the behemoth that it is now, it takes a lot of great execution, right? And continue the pressure and innovation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you cannot predict what's going to happen at the end. Yeah. But if at the beginning, if you couldn't get, you invite a thousand people and three sign up. Yeah. Then right, you know, it's going to be uh, a slog. So yeah. that's why I phrase it at least X percent of, of my target market will do this because that sets up your viability. Okay. I need to have 0.5% of the people. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I, I have to ask you why, for example, the book, pu- book publishing industry doesn't work this way. I mean, I know you wrote about it in the book, and it's funny because we just released a free ebook called Make More Art. And I literally, my, I'm sure some of my thought process was driven by reading your book. I was like, why put it behind a, a we don't need an email address, we don't need anything. Let's just see how many people download it to see if the idea resonates at all. And, you know, before we even bother, and in it, I said, hey, by the way, you know, if you want to pre-order a physical copy of this book, here's a landing page to sign up. So, you know, the stakes are much lower. We get this nice brand building piece. Uh, but I, I'd been thinking about this idea a lot when it comes to publishing. And I started writing a blog post titled Minimum Viable Publishing. But the publishing mm-hmm. industry does this like pretty much backwards where, you know, like my joke is basically they hand out, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in advances and Tim Ferriss and Michelle Obama make up for the losses that they take on everybody else. Uh and yet it seems that when you have an audience, why wouldn't you sell the book first, then have the author go and write it, then have the author go into a cave for a year and a half, then put together this aggressive marketing plan and then try to sell it to the audience. It just seems really backwards. Uh, well, you know, it does until you actually analyze it. And yeah. I would say that the VC industry is the same as the publishing industry, right? Is in, in a sense, is the same as the movie uh, industry. Yeah. And this is where... A lot of entrepreneurs get messed up, right? Because let's say you get funding by a VC, you know, as it, uh, as it happens. So in, in my book, I tell the story. My first startup, I raised $3 million. 18 months later, we get an offer, acquisition offer for $100 million, which, of course, we took, right? In those days, <laughs> $100 million was a lot. You'd be a fool uh, not to take it. 
So after that, I joined Google and all the success. I mean, I had a string of successes and I thought I was, you know, the Italian Steve Jobs, yeah. uh, Stefano Giobini. Uh, uh, and, and so with all that uh, hubris, I decided, okay, now I want to do another startup. I, forget raising $3 million. I'm going to raise a lot. Uh, you know, so, so we raised $25 million. And, uh, and I remember, you know, we raised the first round from Sequoia, as the, you know, the, the best VCs uh, in Silicon Valley. And I thought, great. We, we have it made. If Sequoia thinks we're going to be successful, it's going to be successful. <laughs> right. But, but here's what happens, right? So the, the VCs and the publisher work in a very different way than the, the entrepreneurs and the authors. A VC gets to make many bets uh, and some of them will work and most of them will not work. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Same with the, with a publisher. They have a lot of eggs in the basket, and they know from past experience that some of the eggs will make up for the losses. Right. Uh, you know, w- one Google uh, for a Sequoia makes up pretty much for every single failure right. or you know, investment that did not succeed. And I'm not exaggerating here, right? Uh, so, but here's the problem: as the entrepreneur or as the author, you're at the other end. You only have one egg mm-hmm. and one basket. Yeah. Right. So when uh, my VCs, uh, who invested $25 million in my uh, uh, startup that did not work, so to them, it's a minor loss, right? It's a disappointment. <laughs> right. For me, it was five years of my life, yeah. for my co-founder, five years of his life, for all of our employees and people that joined us, you know, uh, hoping to succeed. It was a lot of time and a lot of commitment. So VCs and publishers, they play a very different game. Their goal is to put out as many books as possible. They, they have a certain threshold for doing tests, yeah. but they can both afford to be less, um, uh, you know, less stringent with their testing. And right. in fact, they have to. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you go to a VC and said, here's my idea. And they said, okay, before we give you funding, I want this evidence and this evidence and this evidence. Yeah. Then they go to another VC and the VC says, sure, come on board. You know, if it doesn't work, you know, we, we invest in the team, we'll find something else. They're going to go with the second VC. So that's why you cannot, you have to, if you're an entrepreneur, you're playing a very, very different game mm. than if you are uh, on the other side. Well, it's fascinating because, I mean, the whole premise of this this uh, ebook that I wrote was the idea that, you know, one of the sort of greatest insurance policies in a creative career is to be prolific, you know, to write as much as possible, to that's create right. as much as possible. Because then, you know, even though you have, like you said, you know, you have one basket, one egg, like that helps you create multiple baskets and multiple eggs in, in some way. Um, you know, and I just noticed that pattern up with a lot of creative people. So that, that's a really, I'd never thought about it that way. Uh, let's, let's wait, 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 wait. before, before you go string and no, cause that's a very important point. Yeah. So you, 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 you catch on fast, right? So that's what exactly, that's the whole point of, of my book and my, and my tools and my methodology become your own VCs. How do VCs succeed? Because they invest mm-hmm. in a lot of ideas, right? Say yeah. 10, 20, 30 ideas per year. Well, how do entrepreneurs succeed? They need, you need to invest and test also a lot of ideas until you find one that works. But usually what happens, and I know because it happened to me because it's human nature, you, ha- you try to solve a problem, you come up with an idea, you fall in love with that idea. <laughs> and instead of testing it in the real world, you applied confirmation bias. You know, love is blind. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you assume that your idea works and you decide not to test it and you put all your passion on that uh, one egg. Instead, I tell you, don't fall in love with the idea, right? Fall in love with the space that you want to uh, to address, 
with the problem that you want to solve, uh, fall in love with the problem, flirt with the ideas. Mm -hmm. In other words, interview and test many ideas uh, and find out the ones that actually give you good feedback. So for your conference, right, you could have tried different titles and different locations and differ, different uh, uh, price point and different focus, yeah. right? So, but, uh, and that's what you really should do pretty much with everything that you do uh, if you want to avoid failure. Mm. Having said that, and this is very important, sometimes, you know, the world needs the crazy people. Right? <laughs> I, I give you a formula for not failing. So if you take money from VCs uh, or you have investors, you don't want to fail, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so glad that there are the crazy people in the world that said, look, I know it makes no sense. I, you know, I'm just going to go out and do it. You know, I call it like the uh, Promethean entrepreneurs, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, they're going to, they're going to make it or, or that. And, and I love those people, right? And in fact, some of the things I do are in that things. I don't know. I don't need the validation. Somebody in the world needs to do this, whether or not they can uh, guarantee success. So I want to make sure that there is a balance, mm -hmm. right? So be very clear. If it's important to succeed because you have investors, because, uh, you know, some people depend on it, your family depends on it, yeah. then follow my book, which will really flip around the odds from failure, right? Instead of a 10, 20% chance of success, I give you an 80 to 90% chance of success. But sometimes in your life, if you've been successful, Take the risks, mm -hmm. do something crazy. You know, otherwise life gets a little bit too boring and predictable. Yeah. So in this market success equation, you you actually talk about failure being, uh, you know, failure due to launch, failure due to operations, and failure due to premise. Can you uh, define what those are for us and expand on them? Sure. So when I, you know, the, the way to beat failure is to study failure and understand it. So uh, when I started to work on pre-totyping these ideas, I decided, okay, let me look a lot of companies that have failed, and I look at hundreds of companies in you know dozens of industries, and see if the techniques that I teach would have helped them uh, out. So the first thing I did, I look at a lot of failures of both of companies and individual product, and I was able to put them into three buckets with the acronym FLOP: failure due to launch, operation, or prom for, uh, premise. Failure due to launch usually, it, you know, your marketing is not very good. The market doesn't know about your product. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> that's clearly they're not going to buy. It. Yeah. Failure due to operation means that your product doesn't work, right? So maybe it's a restaurant and the food is awful, or it's an app and it keeps <laughs> crashing. Yeah, uh, and it's a book and it's poorly edited, or it's a, yeah. Uh, the third one is P in flop is failure due to premise. Mm -hmm. What that means is that it doesn't matter how well you build the product, how well you market it. Uh, there's nothing that will save it. Nothing will make it a success. Mm. The, it, your product is what I call the wrong it. Right. But, and the right it is a product that, if competently executed, will succeed in the market. The wrong it is a product that no no amount of marketing fair, fireworks or engineering excellence is going to make it uh, succeed. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, and, and most failures, I'm sorry, that's the last point. 80 to 90% of the failures can be attributed to people building the wrong product. Uh, not that they are incompetent in building or marketing, just to build a product that the market does not care about. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the, the things that I really appreciated that you said. And I remember, I think I tweeted this, po the, this quote. You said, you know, opinions about an idea are not data, not even close. Opinions are subjective, biased judgments. They're guesses thrown out without much thought. 
evidence and critically with no skin in the game, if an idea spends too much time in what you call thought land, it gets wrapped in a fuzzy ball of unsubstantiated off the cuff judgments. And I think that you gave us, uh, you know, I think all four of the, the three ones, you mentioned confirmation bias earlier. I think that, you know, that is one of the, but you talked about the skin in the game problem and the prediction problem. Can you tell us what those are as well? Yeah. So the, uh, w- when you have an idea, so if, if I tell you my idea, I would say, Hey, Hey, Srini, I have a, I have a new idea. Beer for dogs, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you're single. Let's assume you have a dog, you know, and you don't like to have pizza and beer alone. So I want to create pizza for dog and beer for dogs. Uh, they're completely healthy, right? They're not going to get, uh, drunk. Yeah. Now, when I, when I tell it to you and you'll give me Alberta, that's a stupid idea. You know, my dog like Alpo, whatever. So that's an opinion. Some other people may tell me, hey, Alberto, that's a great idea. You know, I usually eat, eat pizza alone and my dog is looking at me. Can I have a bite? And pizza is not healthy for dogs. So I said, look, these are all opinions, right? They're, they're, they're biased. You have a very hard time predicting whether it's a good idea or not. I mean, take, take Uber. Yeah. You know, when somebody articulates Uber, uh, you know, when I first heard it, it, what is it? Strangers drive their own car and pick up strangers from strange places and drive them to some other strange places. Yeah. Right. It, it sounds like a, a, a setup for a, for a horror movie <laughs> yeah. or a thriller, right? Or Airbnb, yeah. rent your couch for $50 a night, you know, in the early days of, of couch surfing. Mm-hmm. So when you hear it, you, you have a lot of these biases that you think, oh, it's not going, um, to work. So, uh, you, you bring on your, your own, uh, uh, bias. There is also the translation problem, right? The way I envision a pro, an idea in my head is not the same way that you envision it when I explain it to you. So when you put all of these things together, uh, you have a mess. Also, we're really bad at predicting, right? So let, let's, let's get back to Uber. Mm-hmm. When I first heard about Uber, I thought over my dead body, <laughs> right? I'm not going to get into a car with a random person. I mean, isn't that the first person your mother teaches you? Yeah. You know, Trini, don't get into a car with a stranger, okay? Yell, stranger danger, yeah. as I say in the US. So, but that's that's the premise. So at first I thought, okay, this I would never do it. Then uh I decided to try it and I thought, wow, this works uh this works great. You know, I will use this instead of taxis at the airport, for example. Uh so that was my prediction. What I didn't predict is that it would actually change my behavior completely. I wouldn't use it just like taxis, I would use it for in different ways. Uh, another one, uh, and then I told my daughter, "Hey, honey, you should try Uber. Uh, you know, it's really fantastic." And she said, "Dad, I've been using it for two years." <laughs> so after I told her, "Don't get into a car with strangers," right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so not only that, but she she also thought I will use it here and there. And then she lives in San Francisco, where you know parking is next to impossible. So she pretty much brought brought her little uh, Toyota to our house and left it in our driveway. And now she she doesn't need the car anymore. Mm-hmm. So. See, it's so hard to predict whether we would use or not. Yeah. So Uber is a situation where I thought I-, I would never use it. So I'll use it as a taxi. Well, I'll use it in a million ways. But we also suck at predicting things the other way. You know, when Webvan, the original right. was announced, I thought, this is so fantastic. You know, I, ha- I hate shopping for zucchini. You know, I'll just go online and buy zucchini the same way I buy books. Uh, so my prediction is I would never set foot in a, bo- in a, in a grocery store. The reality is I tried it. It worked just exactly as advertised for whatever reason and didn't end up using it. So that's a prediction problem. We suck at predicting mm. uh, what would work for us. So these are all sort of embedded cognitive biases. Are there ways to overcome them? I mean, I, I remember you know one of, uh, one of our former guests uh, who also talked to another former guest about traditionally publishing a book said, oh, you know, that guy said his whole speaking career changed after a traditionally published book. It's been a game changer. 
And I thought, yeah, but he's also sold a million books. So there's confirmation bias at work. Uh, and that was the first thing I thought. And I know that I have it as well. So is there a way to avoid that? Like, is there a way to overcome any of these cognitive biases? Uh, Yes. And, you know, of course, we, we could spend 10 hours on this discussion because uh, uh, I spent hundreds of hours studying it. But the, the shortcut is just collect data with skin in the game, right? So what, what, what we call biases is, is a combination, as I said, a fuzzy ball of opinion, judgment, you know, unsubstantiated beliefs, hopes, hypes, repl- replace hopes and hypes with hypotheses. And, you know, the beauty of a hypothesis exists for one reason, to be tested, mm. right? When you say, hey, I have a hypothesis. If I do this, this thing will happen. Said, okay, great. You can go ahead and actually test uh, that hypothesis without actually going all, uh, all the way and building the product, right? So you don't even want to prototype it. You want to do something earlier than that because people spend months or years building prototypes mm-hmm. and... Uh, you can test that much, uh, much more quickly by building a prototype, yeah. which is a, a a version of your product that doesn't exist, right? You, you, your conference doesn't have to exist for you to announce the intention to have a conference, right. correct? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, but by the way, since you mentioned the conference, I want to confirm that you're doing the right thing. The first workshop for prototyping I did at Stanford, I thought, well, I would like to do a workshop at Stanford, you know, but you have to get a lot of permissions and everything. So what did I do? I created a brochure uh, for the workshop mm-hmm. uh, that had uh, me, uh, a colleague, a Stanford professor, and you know, no, and I had actually a date, you know, on June fifth, uh, two thousand twelve. Forget what it is on the beautiful Stanford campus, and I sent it to all my LinkedIn contacts. So a lot of people replied, said, "Hey, Alberta, would love to attend this." So I, when I went and approached the people that gave me the permission to organize a conference, I went with them with data, mm-hmm. right? To said. Look, you don't have to do this, but if we do this conference here, you're going to get people from these big shot companies, I don't know, Procter & Gamble, Anheuser-Busch, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so it started with the brochure. There was no conference. And then you said, okay, <laughs> I told my colleague, hey, now we got to scramble because now we better put together a two-day workshop. <laughs> but, right? But we made sure that there was a demand and an interest because we knew that we could build it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's four criteria for the data that you... Um, actually outlined, which I thought were really funny, because I I think the thing that I appreciated so much about this book is I'm an Indian person who sucks at math, like everything math oriented just makes my head spin. That's why I do creative work. But um, you took this and you made it accessible to somebody like me. But you talk about four criteria, freshness, strong relevance, known provenance and statistical statistical significance. Can you define what those mean? Yeah. And the, the problem that I'm trying to address is the following. I tell people first, look, do not depend on opinions. Seek data. Now, if you most people think that if anything with numbers, right? You, you take it random numbers, you put them in a spreadsheet, you sort them, and you um, and, and you draw, print a pretty chart. It looks like data, right? <laughs> right, right. Or you can take uh, data from other uh, people and apply. So I said, no, no. There, there's two types of data that I describe in the book. The first one is OPD. It stands for other people's data. It's data collected by other people for other purposes for, you know, the project may be similar, but these are other people, other purposes, other times with other criteria. Instead, what you need is what I call Yoda, mm. which stands for your own data. So if you have, a, uh, let's pick again your conference, right? Yeah. So you could say, well, you know, 
conference, you know, business conferences are very successful. Last year, there were, you know, 43,000 of them in the United States. And on average, they made this much money. So that's what I call OPD, right? So, so, so it succeeds. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to do yet another conference. Uh, instead, what you did is collect your own data, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 uh, the specific data for the, um, uh, for the Srini, uh, specific conference. Yeah. So you want, and you want your data to be fresh. Fresh, freshness means that, uh, it has to be close to when the event happens. You cannot say, because things are moving so fast, right? Mm. What work, uh, if you go back, what was it? Five years ago, you want to reach millennial. You say, well, Facebook is a place to reach millennials. Now, a lot of, you know, millennials, you know, do not use Facebook. They go, go to the latest, greatest. So it has to be fresh. It has to be relevant. It has to be specific to your, uh, project. And you have, Ideally, have to somebody to keep you honest, mm-hmm. right? Because you, if you love your idea, if it's your idea, you're going to show some confirmation bias in looking at the data. Yeah. So, no, pick your most critical friend, you know, the one that always says, you know, is a smart ass place to play the devil advocate. <laughs> hey, okay, Srini, you know, this data looks pretty good, but you did, uh, you know, a, a lot of the people that sign up are not just your listener, yeah. they're your, your personal friends. So you really shouldn't count those and, you know, and extrapolate from uh-huh. that. It, it's funny. I, I, this is the most ridiculous story, and I can't believe I'm going to share it with you on, on the air, but I, I thought it was kind of relevant. So uh, a couple of days ago, I came across a profile of this girl on co- this Coffee Meets Bagel app, and I was like, wow, she's really cute. And then she never showed up again. And I had just talked to this professional poker player, Alex Sorelli, about you know building a tolerance for risk. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. Based on his advice, if I Googled this girl and sent her an email... There's a 50-50 chance this could work out in my favor. And if it doesn't, I'm kind of in the same position I'm in right now. And so I was like, okay, at the risk of appearing like a total lunatic, I figured, what the hell? And? I don't know. I'll tell you. I haven't checked my email. Oh, okay. yeah. It was just this morning. You tell me a story like this and not tell me how it ends. I don't know the ending yet, so I can tell you. But yeah. I, I was, it, was just, it, it came to mind as we were talking about that. Um, you know, sort of combining your ideas and, you know, sort of this idea of risk tolerance. So I thought, yeah, okay. You know, like I'm not in any worse a situation, you know, than I was before. That's absolutely, they're just little, little bets. And by the way, it's so funny because in my book, I actually talk about, you know, fear of rejection that is built in us, you know, and we try to go and ask for dates. What people are afraid of, the reason they don't do this kind of market research that I talk about is because they're, they have a fear of being rejected, not by the girl or by the boy, but by the market, mm. right? So as long as your idea exists only in your head, you, you know, can be the most beautiful, successful idea. But once you go out in the world and you run the test, you run this risk of learning that, oh, I thought everybody wanted beer for dog or pizza for dog. <laughs> and, you know... I spent a thousand dollars in Google Google Ads and I didn't get a single click. Yeah. <laughs> so that that is market rejection, you know. And in our guts, it feels a lot like all other kinds of rejection, right? You know, romantic rejections, you know, work rejections, um, and so and so forth. Mm. Well, let's do this. Um, I want to come full circle back to sort of you know you've mentioned that you've sold multiple startups, you know, hundred million dollar offer. You were early on at Google. And so this, you know, any, anytime I've had the, the good fortune to talk to somebody in your position, I always want to ask them about sort of money, you know, like what is, you know, what was your narrative about money going in and growing up? And, you know, what is your narrative about it now? And is it 
everybody says, yes, this will solve your money problems, but it won't solve any of your other problems. You probably heard it. Naval did an entire podcast about how to get rich and uh, it was brilliant. I mean, it was one of the best pieces of content I've heard all year long. And, you know, I, I think that there are those of us who are like, one of, one of my friends who works on my team is like, you know what? He's like, that's great. People tell you money won't buy you happiness. <laughs> he's like, I'd rather be poor and unhappy or, you know, rich and unhappy is what he jokes. But <clears throat> so I, I wonder, you know, one, how much of this, uh, like being a Larry and Sergey, like how much of that is, okay, you know what? This is just destiny because we've had Justine Musk here too, um, Elon's ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she said is that, you know, she didn't want to get deterministic, but this is, there, there are some people who are just going to achieve at that level. And I think that as a culture, you know, you basically go through medium every day and you're like, oh, if I'm not Steve Jobs, Oprah, or Mark Zuckerberg, well, then something is wrong with me. Yeah, well, fortunately, I'm, uh, I, I don't know if I was ever at that level, but I'm definitely uh, not, um, not there now. So I believe that one's relationship to money uh, changes as it should change over time, mm-hmm. right? So when you're young, I guess it's okay to be uh, ambitious. Uh, the, the the best thing about having made some money is to be able to verify for yourself that it's not enough, right? It doesn't buy you happiness. Yeah. Uh, the, the the best thing about having uh, you know achieved a certain degree of success is that you don't have to go and look back and say, "Well, I've never, you know, I haven't proven myself." Uh, there are just steps that once you reach them, you, you realize firsthand that what they've been telling you all along, right? Yeah. Not, not, you know, money doesn't buy uh, happiness. Uh, you know, success, uh, success cannot be defined in terms of the external. You realize that all those things are true because you've been there yourself. But now I will tell you, for people like us, like the, you know, the doubting Thomases, we kind of have to experience it ourselves. Yeah. So the, the best gift of actually having made some money is to realize that, uh, yes, dang, they were right. Right. Now I'm going to go and focus on completely, uh, different things, right? Cause you, what you need, you, what you need to be happy is very, very, uh, uh, little and you don't want to sacrifice happiness to achieve, uh, you know, the kind of level of financial success that frankly only happens by by chance, yeah. in my opinion, you have hard work, but you know, if circumstances were differently different. Larry and Sergey would be very successful professors mm-hmm. of computer science, right? Yeah. <laughs> at some prestigious university, equally happened, but they were at the right place at the right time. So yeah. don't. Well, yeah, it's funny because I remember the Bill Gross TED Talk when he said he analyzed something like 300 startups, and he said one of the biggest factors was timing. And you know, I mean, Friendster came out before Facebook, but it didn't have the same level of success. Like we always joke, you know, the my friends and I went to Berkeley. We graduated December 2000 and we were college from 96 to 2000. It was like watching the most amazing party from, you know, across the bay. And then when we got to San Francisco, it was over. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's absolutely right. Yes. Uh, so, you, you know, right now, who am a fan of uh, money wise? The people that just have the courage to give it all away. Mm. Right. Uh, my, my favorite story is, um, you know, the philosopher Wittgenstein, you know, he was heir to an enormous fortune, right, from his family. Uh, and he just decided, well, I don't want it. So he gave it all to his sister. And, uh, I, you know, of course, I wasn't there. But the story is uh, from uh, one of his biographies that, well, why did you give all your money away to your sister? Why didn't you give it to, to, to other people? And he said, because, you know, money can really corrupt. And my sister has already a lot of money, so I'm not going to do her any damage. Mm. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, 
Yeah. So that's uh, that's my attitude. The best way of making some money is that you realize, okay, this is uh, this is good. This is uh, enough. You don't need a lot of it. Yeah, well, I think the the your Paul Graham one is how to start a startup class, which you know I, I don't know Sam Altman's class. Paul Graham gives one of the talks, and he said, you know, like you you don't you think that oh people like Larry and Sergey live these charmed lives, but he's like, what you got to remember is Larry Page started running a hundred miles an hour when he was twenty six years old, and he's never stopped. And you know, yeah. basically, he's like, your quality of your problems change, but he said, and of course, he said, nobody has any sympathy for you when you're a billionaire. Uh, but there's a, there's a really funny way of phrasing it. Yeah, you know, you know, imagine when was it uh, Zuckerberg uh, testifying at the congressional hearing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that cannot be fun. No, no. <laughs> and at the same time, I don't think anybody's like, oh, poor Zuckerberg. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You know, if, if you're at that level, you, you're probably getting one lawsuit per day for this reason or for that reason. So you're just like, uh, what is the, the saying? More money, more problems. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. You know, th there, there is a just an amount that is just right, uh, just good enough. You know, once you can provide for your family, send your kids to school, you know, be able to put food on the table, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think the rest is an excess. But, you know, in s doing that in Silicon Valley and accepting it, is very very hard. I think our screwed up relationship with with the money at all level is because of so many uh, yeah. trouble, so much uh, dissatisfaction um, in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that not only is it a dissatisfaction, it seems that it's also led to a sort of ruthless um, approach to business. I mean, Simon Sinek has talked about this a lot in his latest book, The Infinite Game, and another one called Leaders Eat Last, yeah. uh, where. I mean, it seems like it, part of what happened is, you know, growth became growth for its own sake, just became this thing that everybody was so focused on. I, one of my friends, Paul Jarvis, who was also guest here, said that, you know, in any other field or any other part of life, infinite growth is called cancer. That's right. That's right. It's unsustainable. You know, you need, need to keep adding. Look, if you want the GDP to grow, how can you do it? You add more people mm -hmm. and God knows the planet doesn't need more people. Right. Or. Or you get people to spend more money, but people are already spending beyond their means. Mm. So where does this growth um, come from? So I think, but but this goes into very, very uh, <laughs> philosophical yeah. territory. And, and, but as I put at the end of my book, right? So it's important that if you decide to bring a new product to the market, that it's the right it, meaning a product that will succeed if you build it well. Uh, but also it's important to make sure that it's the right it product for you. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, peop, I have people, I have this guy, no kids. Uh, his idea had, was a startup that had to do with diaper delivery. <laughs> and I told him, why do you want to do this? He said, well, I, because I see a market need, a market and opportunity. And I, I told him, do you really want to be in the diaper business? I mean, if this succeeds, this, re this, re this really excites you. So people sometimes want to do something uh, just for the money, but they have no interest in that. So make sure it's the right it, a product that will succeed. Yeah. Make sure it's the right it for you that it's, you know, it, it comes natural and also ideally for the world, right? So if you want to make money, you know, co come up with a new version of a crack or ecstasy, you know, there are many ways of doing money in, in immoral ways. Yeah. But if you can have the trifecta, you are building a right product, you know, product that the market wants in so about something you're passionate and interested or interested in. And the product is good, you know, it kind of contributes to a general goodness of the world. Then you have the trifecta, and I think that will lead to a, you know a much more satisfying life uh, uh, in general. Wow. And that's what I hope my book inspires people to achieve. Wow. 
Well, I think that makes a really just beautiful place to uh, finish our conversation. So I have one last question for you, um, which is how we finish all our reviews, which I, I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, you know, and since I listen to your podcast, I, I hate to give you the same uh, <laughs> answer that other people have given you, but, you know, I'm not going to make up something just to be different, right? <laughs> uh, right. And, and I think it has to do with, you know, b- b- being true to yourself, uh, being uh, genuine. Don't do not do things just to impress uh, other people for some external purposes, mm. right? So if you're, uh, if you're passionate about uh, music, but you know that uh, musicians don't make as much money as lawyers, you know, for Pete's sake, don't become uh, uh, a lawyer, yeah. right? Wow. <laughs> In fact, I have three friends that are lawyers and now they're kind of uh, retired and they're trying to be uh, full-time musicians. I <laughs> think, <laughs> Dang, you know, I lost 30 years of practice. Now it's, it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty harsh lock. So yeah. I think to be unmistakable, you, you have to be really genuine. Otherwise you, you're, you're not going to be mistaken, but you're going to be mistaken for a fake. You're going to wow. be fake. So that's, uh, that's no fun and it's hard to sustain. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your book, your work, everything that you're up to? Yeah. AlbertoSavoia.com. It's just like Albert Einstein, except that I have an O at the end. Uh, and the book is called The Right It, uh, all available in the finest uh, bookstores. And I'm pretty accessible. You know, if people have some questions, uh, they can send me email and I try to help them. Again, my mission these days is to help our most valuable resource, mm. entrepreneurs mm. and innovators, to make sure that the idea that they pursue and invest in will succeed because they really are the our most valuable resource. So that's my passion these days. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.